All right, welcome back to Slowcast. I'm your host, Mark Angelini, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Hanna, as well as our first in-studio guest, Zach Christinger. And this AKA is AKA Zach or AKA Chris. <laughs> <laughs> and this is our second go. We were just 18 minutes into our recording before we realized we had a technical issue. <laughs> Which, uh, if you've been following along, it's nothing new for our journey as podcasters. But right. uh, there's some special uh, quirks when you try to record three people in person. That's right. So. Without any further ado, we're joined by Zach, and now he's got his story down really good because he already told it once. <laughs> he rehearsed it once. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Zach, can you tell the listeners um, where you are from and what you do and just give us a little rundown about your life? Sure, yeah. So, yeah, I grew up here in Virginia um, and have lived here pretty much my entire life. Um, yeah, I grew up in a small town called Warrington um, on the northern end of Virginia. Went to college in Southern Virginia, and then um, have been living right outside of the Charlottesville area for about the last uh, five or six years. Um, about three years ago, um, I decided to move up to Midcoast, Maine, um, just kind of on a on a whim, and uh, yeah, kind of started. Um, yeah, I guess started my woodworking journey a little bit more seriously there. Um, kind of an immersive experience in a area with a really rich history of handcraft and yeah a lot of really amazing folks doing beautiful beautiful work now when you say midcoast maine um i i picture um actually i don't know what i picture i definitely <laughs> picture i picture the ocean for sure and maybe a bunch of rocks but uh what's the general area in midcoast maine that when you say that, what do you mean exactly? Sure. Yeah, like a lot of yeah, a lot of rocky coastlines. Um, the area in particular where I live is a little bit more than an hour north of Portland. Okay. Nice. So you know, in the grand scheme of the state of Maine, it's still very much so southern. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, a lot of rocky coastlines. There's some. Um, there's some sandy beaches. Mm. There's a really, <laughs> there's a really uh, some. neat surf culture up there. Oh really? Um, and I started surfing when I got to Maine, and yeah, that's being good. being on the coast feels really special. Yeah, yeah. I bet. I'd like to have consistently in my life. Yeah. Nice, sweet man. So we were talking on our on our first uh, <laughs> first go through about Zach's journey into green woodworking and Sloyd, um, and I was just asking him, you know, what was what was really the first thing that got you into green woodworking and uh, in particular to the pole lathe learning, which is kind of your primary focus now? Um, yeah, so uh, initially I, I started working as a carpenter um, right after college. Um, yeah, I was brought onto this really unique uh, environment where we're building a house for a farm owner, um, you know, working with a lot of really incredible local woods and materials um you know and coming into that job with zero woodworking or carpentry experience you know i was the guy you know cleaning up and sanding sanding <laughs> boards and uh yeah kind of gradually was given a little bit more freedom to um, yeah do some framing and trim windows and doors and um, mostly was working you know underneath 
really incredible project. Yeah, and that kind of got that. Yeah, that kind of like got the gears turning as far as I really enjoy like working with my hands. Um, so you know, we always had uh, like cool little cutoffs from you know pieces of black walnut or cherry that um, we've been using in the job, and I take those home and sand them down and make little cutting boards or coat racks. Um, then you know stools, just really like simple woodworking projects. And were you using power tools to do those so, types of projects? Yeah, so okay. yeah. yeah. And again, a lot of sanding. I was, yeah. doing, I was really good at that from <laughs> from that job. <laughs> um, yeah, also working with yeah with soapstone, um, which is a, a a local resource in that area. You said uh, what was the town that has, has the largest? Stepstone quarry in the world called Skyler. Skyler, yeah. I had never heard of that. I think the quarry is owned by a Canadian company. Oh, interesting. Huh. So mm. they, yeah, they cut out the stone and then ship it very far away. And what wow. are they? Just as a side, you what are they using? Like in the project you were on, what was the soapstone used for primarily? We were inlaying it um, around fireplace. Hearts. Okay, because that's oh, where wow. I've heard it is like wood stoves fireplaces yeah. cool um, that's neat yeah soap yeah soapstone's a really incredible material um cooking on it is a relatively common thing yeah for people to do it kind of works as similar to like the surface of a cast iron okay yeah where you have a porous surface and when it's well oiled you have like a non-stick okay. oh neat yeah i've seen uh wood stoves that have soapstone built into the surface for cooking that's neat because it holds heat well too right yeah i mean it can be hours after your fire has gone out and it's still still warm to the touch Mm. cool but yeah definitely started experimenting with soapstone as well um and i kind of started messing around with making soapstone furniture you know mostly just like little end tables and stools yeah um and because soapstone is so soft, um, you know, it's, it's easy to sand. Mm. You can get um, a diamond blade for a skill saw and cut and shape it. Um, so I started creating these stools um, where I drill holes through the soapstone and attach wooden legs with um, dowels. Um, so they usually had three or four legs and then would uh, attach them together with like a shelf mm. nice. to kind of give the legs some stability. Yeah, I really enjoyed making those. It kind of was like my first project where I felt like I was creating something organically, maybe not necessarily based off of something that I'd seen online. Mm-hmm. Although I'm sure, I'm sure other people have tried it. <laughs> yeah, you know, I can't be the only one. Um, so you were just the materials were there, and you just got to tinkering around. Yeah, and... I mean, it, it was just being around like those beautiful materials. It just felt hard to not do anything yeah. with them. Yeah. I just felt like I was in like a really unique and lucky position and I should try to take advantage of that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Nice. So then you were telling us uh, on this project, the serendipity of, uh, I guess it was a friend who had some pole-laid tools. Yeah. And he asked you if you'd ever heard of pole-laid turning. Yeah, <laughs> which I, yeah, which I surely hadn't. Um, I had I'd done some pole turning on an electric lathe, and I really enjoyed oh, okay. that. Um, 
But as I was mentioning earlier, you know, I, I've been doing so much sanding and so much work <laughs> with power tools. I felt like I had reached my, uh, my quota of, uh, <laughs> of, of hours of being in like a dusty and loud environment. So yeah, I was really searching for, uh, something that felt a little bit more environmentally con uh, conscious. Mm -hmm. Nice. And yeah, you know, after explaining these feelings to a friend, he, he uh, told me to Ben Orford hooks and well, yeah, I, I looked into it and I was like, yeah, that's, that's really neat. I would, I'd love to, I'd love to try to do, yeah, try to, try to try a pole wave myself. So from there, just, um, yeah, I used Owen Thomas's videos on YouTube, um, which were, yeah, really incredible resource. And I think at the time he hadn't posted, they hadn't been up online for all that long. So that this is just like, you know, meant to be in some yeah. ways, you know, yeah. like this like step-by-step -step tutorial of how to make <laughs> your own. Um, and my brother had an Alaskan chainsaw mill. And he oh, had just perfect. milled up some, uh, some ash mm. from, um land that my my grandfather had owned perfect so got the wood and yeah. i've got the tools and just need to get it built yeah yeah i mean once the lathe was complete you know i didn't really have i hadn't really looked too far ahead so <laughs> i like kind of realized i was like oh i need to make a mandrel and i need to handle my tools and learn how to make bowl blanks um so, you know, I had so much energy and excitement to like, get going. And yeah, I mean, once I finally got to that point, um, yeah, I was just like obsessed with turning, mm. with turning bowls. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can relate to that. The first winter I built my pole lathe, I literally like every day when I was done working, I would just try and turn at least one bowl. And I yeah. think I turned like, I don't know, I probably turned like 20 bowls in a month. Yeah. Just, <laughs> just at night. Yeah pretty cool it's very addicting it's very 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 addicting <laughs> yeah especially when you're learning because there's every time you turn you learn one more little thing absolutely and so then you want to do it again to, to to push that a little bit yeah um yeah it's, it's very exhilarating and then you switch species of wood that you're turning <laughs> right. like, oh, this like, is a totally yeah, different yeah. thing yeah <laughs> exactly yep. that's exactly right yeah or even moisture too just from one same species when you have different moisture levels in that wood yeah when i i was using um you know sharif adams and ben orford's uh tutorials on how to turn yeah and where i was living i had really poor service so i'd like run up the hill <laughs> and like watch uh watch a couple minutes and then sprint back down that's and like awesome. got it and it was just kind of this vicious cycle that's awesome but it was you know it yeah, worked yeah it worked. it worked and like you know i think Having that energy towards trying something new is just really exhilarating. Oh, yeah, for so, sure. So fun. Um, yeah, we were also expanding on how I, I think it's cool that the way you went about pole lead turning was just kind of like jump in two feet first. Because yeah. um, I think it's easy. It's a ta it's a kind of thing where this is my experience, at least. Like I learned about it and I watched all these videos, seen how to do all of it online. But there was still like a hurdle of you know, having to actually go ahead and do it. And so I ended up waiting and taking a course. Um, but there's just something to be said about just jump into it. That's kind of how I got into spoon carving. It's like, yeah, I didn't know what I was doing. I just, right. Oh, I need an ax. Okay. Here's an ax. I need a knife. I better get a knife. 
and you know one thing led to another and i think yeah. that's really fun because you just you know there's no real preconce there's no preconceived notions as to like what you should do or how to do it and so obviously yeah. it's harder but mm-hmm. i think it's a little more of a rich experience i would say certainly yeah, yeah. i um uh, i linked up with a, a guy named nathan jenkins who lives up in in page county in mm-hmm. virginia and He's been fully attorney for probably 20 years. Is this the guy you you told me about? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The bodging Bigfoot. Yeah. And, yes. and, um, I like, I, I asked him if I could come and, and do a day of turning with him. He said, yeah, come, come on by. And, um, I was kind of expecting it to be this lesson and giving me all these tips. And, <laughs> you know, I started turning and like, I didn't feel like I was doing a good job and, you know, he just said to me, he's like, there are a lot of ways to go about doing this. Yeah. And yeah, that, that's, that's really stuck with me because yeah. it, it's so true. And, um, you know, I think like having this expectation of turning something perfectly mm-hmm. on your first go is really <laughs> unrealistic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I find that pole turning is so unique to the individual. That's why I think I like it so much because like, you know, pe- for example, I used hooks from Adrian Lloyd when I first got started. And over time, I'm like, you know, I really like these hooks. But once I started forging my own and like knowing how to edge geometry work and the way I turned my form, I was like, my hooks ended up being drastically different than the way mm-hmm. Adrian Lloyd's was, you know, forging his hooks. So like it's so unique to the individual. And like you said, there's so so much individuality involved in pole lace turning, I think. Is really it's such a rich and value filled environment to grow in, and I think that's why even though I wasn't really planning on it when I first got started, I watched Mark turn and I watched a bunch of YouTube videos. I just got going on my own and just <laughs> learned as I went, and I was like, oh, this is kind of neat. There's so, so much, much more, more to, to it, it than going more. and taking a class and like learning from someone else sure. than just picking up the craft on your own and experimenting over over time. I think that's one of the beautiful things about pole laid turning too is. It is. I mean, spoon carving yeah, to some extent, but pole lathe is so much different because you have to build your own lathe. You got to build yeah. your own. I mean, generally, obviously, you can buy tools now and buy centers, but when you're doing all that, like you're building it for yourself, and you get really used to your setup. Yeah. Like I remember last year we had our our little solstice gathering, and yeah. Mike and I built this lathe a few years back, and I've never been able to get that lathe to work as well as mine and my shop does, and it's just. Everything I'm just either I'm just so used to that or yeah. I just built it perfectly for myself. Probably yeah. a little bit of both. Yeah. I think there's very few at least in woodworking, there's very few things like that because power tools, you got whatever brand of power tool, you got mm-hmm. you know, whatever tool from whatever maker. And so there's very little individuality at that level. Yep. Which I think is one of the coolest things about pole lathe turning Absolutely. and obviously like the broader handcraft woodworking in general. Yeah. It's so personalized to your way of working. Everything about it is dialed in. Yeah. Even the style oh, level. Like right. I can, I can tell, tell now that I know you guys, I can tell a Mark's bowl from a Chris bowl, you know, like or Zach's bowl, right? <laughs> my own bowl. And it's just even if I see like a Jared bowl, a Jared Dow bowl or, you know, uh Sharif Adam or some of the other big bowl turners, you like you can tell just from the style, like, oh I know where that like I know who turns that. You know? Yeah. So just the style and the, the that final form, like I think after a while oh, uh, uh, from turning, you just kind of develop that just that form that really works for you, that you really enjoy turning, and it's so individual and unique to you and how you like to work on the lathe. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I, that was kind of a, a, a yeah unique part about you know the progression of of getting better at, at turning. It's kind of watching that that style emerge. Um, yeah, and I think now, did you have any? Had you seen a bowl and you're like, I want to turn that? Just the piece of wood was in front of you, and it just sort of took shape. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I think yeah, starting out, I just had this like little plumber's hatchet it was yeah. incredibly dull <laughs> it was like so my bowl blanks were these really rough irregular pieces of wood and you had a lot uh, of wood to remove yeah so the shape was whatever i could make you know yeah it wasn't really i wasn't going for anything in particular okay. <laughs> bowl like yeah yeah, yeah bowl like it just had to be hollow on the inside yeah <laughs> <laughs> or a little bit of water yeah it could be two inches thick but it's as long as it has some sort of you know hollow i'm good to go that's cool because that's you know yeah, we can we get, get into it. this discussion but um that's one of the interesting things about the internet that i it's kind of like a double-edged sword for me like there's so much inspiration but at some point it's it almost like can corrupt your mind in a way because yeah that for me that's, that's how maybe it's it's probably my genetics more than anything but i'm just like everything's so that scandinavian aesthetic for me yeah. which it probably is my heritage but i just like can't get it out of my head when i go and make whatever it is like it's just i have to try to not go in that mm. and that's how it very much was when i got into pole lifting like i just had this image of this bowl always chasing that um instead of kind of letting it you know that's a great point organically develop that's a great point that you make mark i think i think a lot of us makers and instagram is you know good and bad we go on there and you're like oh i love that spoon and the way it looks i want to do the same yeah or i love that bowl or i love that knife and i want to do the same and i think we get stuck in these in these phases where we fixate on that shape and we're constantly chasing it instead of like oh let's just Let's just do what we want to yeah. do and like see what comes out of our uniqueness and individuality rather than like oh, chasing after yeah, it's an tough. image it's I tough. saw online, you know? It's tough because it's a flood of inf- inspiration. It is. Yeah. It's almost too much. And especially for new makers, I think they get overwhelmed sometimes by just the perfection, right? Quote unquote perfection of what yeah. something looks like aesthetically. It's like, ah, oh, I want that. I want to yeah. do, do the, the same, same thing. thing. Yeah. It's like, uh, yeah, I, one day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel. I had definitely have feelings of envy mm. towards people that kind of grew up before the internet. Yeah. This, this readily available thing. Yeah. And it's like, you know, how differently your mind would function, especially in a, in a creative setting. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. What feels good to you. Right. Yeah. What you're coming up with. I mean, certainly we're always basing shapes and things off of, you know, not na- naturally found yeah. things and, other artists but yeah yeah like you said the internet it's just like this overload the flood yeah <laughs> that's such a that's such an important thing to note i think just the, the the how creativity has evolved over the years with you know with having access to the internet or books or magazines and things like that where the average person like living in appalachia like back in the day they didn't they didn't have access to that like oh no. i need my wife needs a spatula i gotta go out and make one let me grab this like piece of white oak that's been sitting out in the firewood pile and just make a spatula. They had nothing to go off of other than their own sense of creativity and like, they're, or, or they're, what the purpose of it? Yeah, right. Or what? Function. Yeah, like this was totally like a functional item that I need to use around the the homestead instead of like I'm gonna go to the market down the road and <laughs> sell it or post a picture of it on right. Instagram. So 
like that creativity has changed so much over over time and it's gotten to a place where someone's already done it or you're just modifying someone else's shape (laughs) you know based on how you're trying to make it so yeah it's kind of (laughs) sad it's a double-edged sword it is it is yeah um so yeah i think i just think that part's so cool that you're like you also mentioned earlier on our unrecorded interview um how you got into all this during the covid stuff and you were kind of like in this that was just a really special time because it was you were just like out in the woods with the poles, small group of people, and so you were just kind of in the zone. Uh, almost when you were describing it, it sounded kind of like tribal to me. Yeah, um, it felt that way. A very, very simple time. I think I really discovered the things that make me happiest. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And like I was saying earlier, it's like there's part of me that's like always chasing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can relate to that. Especially yeah. having kids <laughs> and grin. <laughs> it's crazy yeah, how much like, that just that one thing can absolutely trajectory of life. I just recently been reflecting back on times in my twenties and thinking about real simple times like that. Yeah. Man. All you had to worry about was yourself. Yeah, what a different <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um so you were living at a farm, you you said you had a lot of you know, basically like infinite access to materials mm-hmm. yeah. um, <laughs> but i'm sure that fed into your obsession progression however you want to word it because you were just in like you were kind of disconnected but you're connected to the source of the materials and inspiration right. Right. so you were able to just pretty much were you still working on the house build at that point or did no, you kind of transition yeah. into just Full on pole wave. Full on pole wave, yeah. Which, you know, there's good and bad to that. <laughs> you know, I think I think right off the bat I did have this sense of like needing to make money right. doing this mm. new thing, mm. which, you know, I think certainly can bring in some negative feelings towards what you're doing. Yes. There's a you yes. know there's an element of pressure behind mm-hmm. it. Like having like yeah. I have to make this much, right, right. this many bowls this week to yeah. hope to sell them. Yeah. Right. You know, not, 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 that not always working out. Mm. Um, you know, I was fortunate that at, at that time I was living as simply as possible. So, you know, I was doing a work trade for my housing. Um, I, was, I was dumpster diving a lot for nice. my food, <laughs> which I love to do. And, uh, yeah, just trying to cut down on as many costs as possible. So there was a little bit of pressure, but I didn't have big bills to pay. Right. Yeah. Which was really nice and allowed me that freedom to have that time. Nice. Which I was really, yeah, I'm really grateful for yeah. that. Yeah. And that was about, you said that was about like a year long that you kind of got into the pole late turning and really honed it over about a season. Yeah. Yeah. And then you, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of practicing yeah. in that year. Yeah. But I, you know, I I loved it. Never, it never really felt like work. Mm. I was like, I was really satisfied with the work that I was doing. And yeah, yeah I remember, I started a little drying shelf in my room for my bowls. And I remember, you know, after about a month or two of being into it, like walking up to my room, it was just full of bowls, hmm. drying. And I was like, yeah, that's just like a deep sense of satisfaction. Of yeah. like, wow, like, hmm. you know, I'm getting better at this. Mm-hmm. And you were selling, 
everything you were making pretty much? Yeah, I um I created a website and then had started to tap into some of the local farmers markets. Nice. You know, having a website and not having people know about it, yeah. you know, is kind of useless yeah. in a way. Um, yeah, doing the farmers markets was really enjoyable. You know, getting to I'd bring my lathe with me to markets and, and demonstrate because I think you know oftentimes people you just see a wooden bowl. It's just a wooden bowl, right? But being able to see how it's made and getting to connect with people in person is a yeah, that's a different experience. Yeah. yeah. Then there's like a memory attached to that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's so, that's so true to the degree that I think a lot of people spend the money and buy the item because they want to know the story behind it. Like, I mean, like what makes this bowl different from this bowl, right? So the story behind the item, I think sometimes is what really is one of the biggest marketing things you could you can provide um, for the customer because they're like, whoa, you're doing this just with your own foot and hand and there's like no power involved. And once they see that process, I think they fall in love so much more with the item because they can know like what went into making it, you know. That's a that's a big piece of marketing too. Yeah. Something I've constantly been learning because I've been working for myself for going on 15 years now. And it's a challenging thing because you like marketing seems like this super sterile like corporate word, but it's not. It's actually a very human it thing. Where we, especially now with Instagram, I mean, most people buy things for an emotional drive. Yes, not so much like the product necessarily it's right. you know a lot of a lot of i think a lot of it is just i like that i think for a lot of people actually with when it comes to green woodworking mm-hmm. or like farming or anything that's related to land or a simpler quote-unquote way of living yeah i think a lot of times people are trying to buy a piece of that because they lack that to some extent mm. which is why there's probably so many nice interiors that sell in people live in cities because like they want to be part of they want to have that part of their life uh you know which they might lacking existence city or whatever it might be right so it's it is marketing is definitely a big part of you know getting someone to buy into the story of lack of a better way of putting it yeah so having the pole laid there we've seen that doing markets ourselves you know oh, you're carving yeah. a spoon or you turn a bowl it's it huge. draws people in they want to see it they've never yeah. seen that before and increases the likelihood that they'll buy something yeah. my yeah. experience it's definitely a huge attraction and the more you and i think that's where instagram is really good where you can share your process right not rather than you just make post pictures of products i think when you share your product you share your your process it draws so much more attention to what you're doing and and i think it's that emotional connection that people have with your process that gets them to the buying of the item Mm -hmm. and it's yeah and i think a lot of people don't capitalize on that marketing uh you know, technique, if you want to call it like that. I mean, I think it's, it's a great thing, but it does make it more human. Like there's just such a human connection to that. And that I think just makes it more than just, Oh, I'm going through a store looking at the shelf and I see mm-hmm. this item and I want to buy it. And then whatever the packaging, yeah. Right. The logo. Or right. The, and, and some kid and whoever knows, whoever somebody knows smiling. Yeah. Oh, they're happy. I'm going to buy it. Right. Yeah. I, I want to be happy. Too. Some kid in India or China, like, you know, was making your yeah, clothing yeah. or whatever it is. So, um, speaking of, while we're on the topic of social media, you've had quite a, I would say like quite a successful ride using social media. It seems like, um, I know you're, you know, in terms of like the metrics, your followers count has gone up significantly since you've been on there. Um, 
I'm curious how that's played into your path as you've used social media. How has that influenced, you know, what you've decided to do? I know you're doing, doing a lot of classes, so it probably helps to yeah. get the word out. Yeah, no, it, it, it certainly has. And, you know, I try to look at it in a positive light because yeah. I have a lot of, I have a lot of conflicting feelings sure. about using social media. Sure. Um, um, yeah, I, I, I feel like in the last year or so, yeah, it's really, I've gained a, Alling, which has been yeah great for getting the word out for classes and just like exposing people to always learning yeah they may not have seen right before um yeah i mean in regards to like sales and my own stuff you know it really there was like a little tick but it didn't change things all that really? much mm. and I've heard um, that a couple of times yeah and then it, yeah that was kind of a surprising experience huh. but it also you know really let me know that like you know, this isn't, I shouldn't just rely on Instagram right. as my only tool. Yeah. You know, I know, I know I've, I've heard Emmett mention this before, email lists, yeah. right. you know, people that are like committed yeah. to yeah. following what you have to offer. Yeah. Cause a follow on Instagram is, you know, all you're doing is tapping a button. Yeah, it's that's like, like, there's no yeah. investment yeah. at all. Right. Yeah. And you can easily un unfollow. <laughs> yeah, certainly. <laughs> that's so interesting. Yeah. I was curious about that. Yeah. Cause I think Emmett, when we talked to him, he did mention something about some people he's tied into in the craft world that have gotten these huge followings and it hasn't to increase, you know, success with their business side of it. Right. Um, which is always interesting, but you have, but you do have wider reach yeah. theoretically. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think, I think part of it is a lot of people just get a really, uh, a nice kick of dopamine, just watching something Yeah. or just like seeing that picture of the item. It's like, Oh, that's cool. Right. So yeah. oh, check this out. It's cool, right? And you were doing a lot of videos. Is that you think that's what led to the rise of your following? I yeah, I guess so. Mm -hmm. I, you know, in a lot of ways, I just feel like I lucked out, and like yeah. somehow my video got put into the right algorithm. Right. Yeah. Um, didn't feel like I was doing anything special or yeah. different. Yeah. You weren't like strategizing. No. How yeah. To grow my follower count. <laughs> no. Yeah. I mean, I try to. Yeah, I try to keep my effort towards instagram pretty minimal yeah. mm -hmm. um but you know also yeah also trying to acknowledge and understand that it, it is a tool yeah and it mm -hmm. can be used for yeah, for positive things yeah. for sure i'm curious to hear about your transition from like you know as you started off polyth turning and really honing in your skills and figuring out the forms you wanted to chase um and then from going to local markets and demonstrating there and just having that aspect uh, of showing the process and how people connected to it and purchase your items how did you transition from that to then like wanting to teach and knowing like there's now a much bigger market where you could make more money you could you know have something a little more um that you could provide for the community so then they can get into it and and learn a skill because that's at least for me that was that's how i felt about like selling spoons or making knives or turning bowls i'm like man it's really hard going to markets and doing all this legwork and trying to, and, you know, feeling disappointed in the end if people didn't buy your thing, right? Sure. It's like, how can I get access to a world where I could teach and share the skill and at the same time, if they like my things, they can buy them. So there's just a, it's like an untapped world of, uh, of things that you could do that would really help, you know, give back a little bit financially if you're putting in a lot of work. So I'm here, I'm curious to hear about a story about how you transitioned from that to teaching. Yeah, and I think that's like the really tough part about 
you know, running your own business and especially being a craftsperson is like, you can't just rely on one thing. Yeah. You, know, you have to diversify. And uh, yeah, I think I, I really got, um, you know, pretty set on doing markets because, you know, I was, I was able to make, you know, a little bit of money doing them, but production work was just constant. Mm. And um, I think after a couple of years of doing that, I could start to feel my body mm. fighting back a little bit. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, you know, like it, it, there are great parts to being at a market and being connected with people. But at the end of the day, you're standing behind the table uh, with things that you've, you know, put your hard work into. Right. And, you know, it can be a little soul sucking just having person after person like walking by and um, buy my stuff. Buy yeah, my a lot stuff. Of right. Yeah, it's like, I don't want to have to beg somebody to buy a bowl and I, I right. won't I'm not gonna do that. Right. You know, if it's right for them, great. Yeah. And, and I'm happy to like share what I'm doing. But I don't yeah, I don't wanna have to convince somebody to buy Certainly. something that they don't want. Bowls. Bowl get your turn bowls. <laughs> On sale now, fifty bucks. <laughs> yeah, that's I, I definitely I've experienced that. Yes. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, being in the farming world that's we have some good friends that they quit doing farmers markets. Not for that exact reason, but for the the grind of the farmer's market. So you don't really see that. You see someone sad at the market. It's like, oh, this is so nice. But there's so much that goes into yeah. that one day is like three days yeah. almost because yeah. there's so much, especially being a craftsperson, you have to make all that stuff, prepare it, get it all ready for sale. So there's yeah. all that time investment. Then you're yeah. getting ready. Right display your tent your right. whatever it is yeah. hope it doesn't rain yeah 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 and there's all a lot hinging on this one time frame like right. it, any yeah the weather wh what's going on elsewhere in that town yeah all of that could dictate how well your sales go yeah they're really hit or miss and there's so like you said there's so much work that goes into them and for a craft person like you could spend a whole season turning or carving or forging or whatever it is and it's like Oh, I get to do two or three markets a year. <laughs> and let's hope I sell all the stuff I just made yeah, and spent all this time on. <laughs> so you, you transition more into teaching and, and now you sell stuff online. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I had done um I done a few classes, yeah, I guess within the last year window. Um yeah, I I was thinking about that on the drive down here. The very first class I did, I was teaching full lathe turning how to make a stool and spoon carving. And like, it wow. was- In one class. It was, in one, which oh was just God. like, yeah, which was crazy. How did that like, go? It was, yeah, it was hectic. Uh, I mean, it was I like bet. trying to bounce around and like having everybody doing something different. Yeah. Like, wow. Um, yeah, that, I mean, it was a great experience because I think it really made me realize how much I enjoyed the, the connection part of mm. teaching. Yeah. Um, but it was also like, I need to rethink I don't want to go about <laughs> doing this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then last summer, uh, I built four more lathes. Um, the real goal of like focusing on teaching pole turning. Yeah. Um, I bought a small little trailer for my truck that is just big enough to fit <laughs> That's awesome. to fit five lathes into. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and from I'm. I'm I'm really glad I made that decision because I think, I think the solitude of working alone every day was really starting to wear on me. Yeah. It's like, I really, I, I don't like to think of myself as a social person because mm -hmm. I do like time alone, <laughs> yeah. but 
I think at the end of the day, as humans, like we're made to connect Absolutely. with one another. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. And you know, I think spending like a full day with strangers yeah. is a really great experience. Mm, absolutely. You know, getting to hear about their lives and you know stories about you know if their their grandparent was a woodworker mm. and this like reminds them like the smells and the tools remind them of of their grandparent or or even people with like who have never picked up a a knife or never never carved or done any type of handwork just trying something that's like so out of their comfort zone yeah. element and yeah it's like i think watching somebody throughout the day and seeing um seeing this experience become really empowering for them mm. you know turning your first bowl is not easy <laughs> by any means no, and not. even if you have somebody there to kind of help help you through the process right but you know everybody's able to finish yeah. and everybody goes home with something that they they made yeah and yeah, that's a really special thing to watch. For yeah, sure. I bet. So how many classes have you been doing? When did you start focusing more on teaching? Um, probably, yeah, last fall. So okay. um, I was in Virginia for the summer and then went up to Maine uh, August through December. Really started to host a, a few more classes there. Um, yeah, Maine, Maine in particular, they're... There seems like there's a lot of interest in the local community yeah. that want to learn. Yeah, um, I was fortunate enough that um, I got linked up with um, Kenneth and Angela Quartermeyer at the Maine Coast Craft School, hmm. um, and they um, gave me permission to stay on their land for for my time up in Maine. And um, they were just wrapping up their teaching season, um, but just yeah, just being around people who are very in into the craft community and like their life really embodies craft mm. in a lot of ways mm. um that was a really that was a really amazing experience yeah. you know i think one thing that's been resonating through my mind a lot recently is just um you know, being intentional with the people that you surround yourself with and i think that was like yeah that was a really great lesson of like uh, like putting myself in situations where I know I'm going to be exposed to good teaching from good people. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. They say you become like the five people you spend the most time with. Yeah. It's, <clears throat> well, it's like kind of like what your parents tell you, like, like your kids, like the people you hang out with have an influence on you. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I think as a kid, you're like, what? Well, yeah, whatever. But <laughs> yeah. it's so true, yeah. you know? Yeah. 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 Look at me. I hang out with this guy. <laughs> yeah. Look at you now. You hang out with us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, it is very, it's so true. When yeah. you're a kid, especially, you're yeah. super influ and easily influenced. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that's cool. Yeah. See, I, I, I wouldn't say we really have that going on in this exact area. Mm. The kind of craft community is pretty. Yeah. Unfortunately, we don't. Pretty dispersed. But it does seem like up there, there's like a pretty good concentration. Like uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin. Vermont. There's a couple of little. Maine. Couple, yeah, Vermont, New Hampshire, yeah. Western Mass. Couple hotbeds, I guess, North Carolina. Yeah. One thing I don't know if you saw this to be true, but because you know I, I have only lived here for going on seven years now. But my experience trying to sell stuff in the Detroit area mm. was, I do different types of markets, and I would always have. I wouldn't say like a hard time selling stuff, but it was the the sale was always a little bit more work. Mm. 
talking a lot to get one sale. Yeah. Whereas here, I came down here and did my first market and I pretty much sold everything. Yeah. And it was like, there was no question on prices. It was like, oh, I want want this, I want this. And it was just such a radically different experience. And that's pretty much held true to the, for the most part, you know, I've done a couple different types of markets around the area here. And I don't know what it is, if it's like socioeconomic or if it's just a cultural thing, but it seemed like people here were more readily willing to support someone that made something. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Michigan, maybe it's that kind of post-industrial mindset, like factory worker. I don't know. I was trying to, I try to wrap my head around what the difference is, but I don't know if you've experienced that to any extent. No, I never have done farmer's markets. I've always done specific makers market so it's like people came they knew they're gonna buy something from somebody generally so i haven't been in a farmer's market where it's like someone's going to get a loaf of bread and they're like oh you got bowls well i don't need a bowl today maybe (laughs) next week check one right (laughs) yeah i mean i feel like with farmer's markets people are usually doing their grocery shopping right they're like not christmas right yeah oh that's very very good point christmas shopping is a little People are ready. To, yeah, that's probably what it is, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I do it during Christmas time. And everyone's <laughs> yeah. like, oh, I got to get a gift for this person. This yeah. Person. But maybe that's maybe that's what, maybe that's the variable I forgot to consider. That's true. But do you do you find that people had, I don't know, I guess, well, what's your take on that? With, yeah, I mean. I, have you, uh, well, I guess, have you ever done just a craft-focused market before? Oh, okay, it's always been farmer's market. Okay. Yeah, so that makes sense. It's a little bit different demographic. And, you know, farmer's markets in general are kind of funny places, too. I've worked a bunch of them. Even trying to sell food, sometimes it's like, you know, there's a depends on the market, but there's certain farmer's markets where it's like people don't go there to really buy food. They go there to buy, like, some cookies and, like, yeah. a jar of jam or something. It's yeah. like they're not going and buying bushels of food. Yeah. It's like, oh, right. I'll go to the farmer's market and buy a little, you know, whatever right marshmallow i don't know it's like some random that's very cupcake or that's very it's not even a it's not even like a they go to the grocery store to get their groceries (laughs) (laughs) but different you know some farmers markets aren't like that right Right. i know a lot maybe that plays into it yeah generally that demographic's not really trying to spend in general whether it's a bowl or a food item what's your experience been focusing more on the online feel like it's a little bit uh more targeted because it's like you're putting yourself out there on the internet and then someone's like oh i want to buy one of these x bowls website right it's it's definitely uh more simple yeah you know it's like yeah just putting putting something out there if somebody likes it they can just click their way to the purchase yeah um which you know which is easy for me and uh i appreciate that and on a lot of levels but there's also a real joy to like talking to somebody yeah. who's going to purchase something. Yeah. yeah. Really getting to tell them like how the bowl was made, mm-hmm. where the tree came from, mm-hmm. you know, add to the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They don't, you don't really get that. Right. There's more connection there for sure. Now, um, I'm curious just from like, the geeky, what platform do you use? So, uh, like, like as far as websites yeah, go, yeah, yeah. I use Big Cartel. Okay. Yeah. Um, which found, I I think I was looking at Owen Thomas's right. website and Yoab's website, and they use Big Cartel. I really like the layout. It's like super 
very easy very, very simple yeah. like uh, uploading your products is like very like seamless okay oh, cool big cartel sounds bad but i'm gonna try it <laughs> <laughs> yeah <I know. laughs> sounds bad i'll give it a shot <laughs> a what are you exactly selling me here <laughs> big <name>. cartel <laughs> i'm just curious because that's i'm i do i dabble a lot the back end side and i've always done like weird i've always been more obscure when i use online sale type stuff i know there's a lot of turnkey stuff like squarespace yeah. big cartel um there's another big one that people use drop shipping um yeah um <laughs> Where do you go from here, man? What's your next move right now? I know you said you had some other projects you're working on. You're building a tiny house and yeah, tiny. House. You're trying, yeah. to, trying to split your time between Maine and Virginia. What's what's next for you? Yeah, you know, just trying to, you know, I guess for the last couple of years, I've been bouncing around a lot, and um, yeah, housing has been a really big obstacle, especially mm. in regards to being in Maine and like the winter. Yeah, and, <laughs> and like you know, finding a area or community where you really like mm. but it only being a temporary right all right yeah i think that's kind of the downside of, of like doing work trades sure, you know, sure. as far as your living space goes it's usually temporary yeah, yeah. um so yeah my partner and i are we're building a, a tiny house on a trailer right now which is uh yeah it's just been a really fun and a big time-consuming <laughs> project but um yeah it doesn't feel like work you know it's it's really nice being able to apply you know skills in carpentry that i've learned over the years into you know shaping this house or structure that i'm going to get to actually live in and interact with yeah um, so yeah that's that's kind of got me tied to being in virginia right now um and the hope is to take it up to maine next spring mm. and start to live up there a little bit more full time nice okay that's cool man but yeah i think i think at the end of the day just ready to feel a little bit more settled yeah you know even if i am splitting time between maine and virginia just be returning to the same place right and knowing i'll have somewhere to be right i met a lot of really great great folks up there and i, I really enjoy my time up there and yeah love to yeah keep on with those connections and relationships that's awesome yeah there was one aspect of polling uh, turning we didn't talk about which is you know near and dear to my heart and that's forging the hooks <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> uh tell us about that process like i know you said you had some hooks that you purchased from ben uh from a friend who had purchased them from ben um and then how did you how did you transition from that to then realizing that man I, if i want to keep this up i got to start making my own because buying those tools is not cheap sure yeah i mean and you know you notice your tools start to wear down over time like these are not gonna last forever um yeah i mean uh the set that i had from ben i mean those served me really well i still have one of his his hooks which is this kind of unique like double bevel oh yeah um you made a few of those yeah yeah yeah, yeah, Mark did. yeah they're great they're super versatile yeah. i mean you can do all sorts of cuts yeah. with them um I love those. I have one of those I use for when I'm doing plates for making the flat mm. of the plate. And I do the bevel up. Nice. <laughs> yeah, and I bought I bought one of the tools. I got a Yoav tool. It was a tip down. Oh yeah. Which I loved. Which it 
I, I made the mistake of kind of using some of my personal tools in class. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, I had one break on me, which was a little, <laughs> mm. that was a sad day. Yeah, but, sad. but um, yeah, learning how to make your own really kind of brings a full circle understanding of like what it is you're actually doing and how this edge is interacting with the wood. Yeah. Um, and that was one thing I was really in admiration of other pole lathe turners that, you know, when I was first starting, like, especially like, you know, Rob, yeah, Robin Wood and Sharif yeah. and just, yeah, their understanding of the whole process sure. you know, through and through from, you know, building your lathe to axing out a bowl blank to shaping your tools and keeping them sharp. It's just like, you know, any, if any part of that system fails, there's a way to fix it yeah. and there's an understanding there's like a knowledge mm -hmm. to know how to fix it too. absolutely it's not it's not like the end of your day it's like, okay right. i guess i'm making a tool yeah yeah, yeah. Right, right exactly yeah but yeah i mean forging still a pretty new thing to me like i uh, I, I can turn i can make hooks that that function but i still i still have yet to have that that really good comprehension of like specifically like what i need mm -hmm. out of the hook yeah and how to get it shaped to that point right um yeah i have a pretty crude blacksmithing setup right now but it you know it it does the job yeah. but yeah old railroad uh tie anvil and use a little uh angle grinder to grind my bevels and yeah um i love that you know i love working simple. with like the simplicity of it. yeah that's awesome what do you use for sharpening your tools i'm curious because that's something that's not often discussed yeah, I use the the DMT cones, yeah. um, just like the little metal plate. Yeah, um, yeah it's like coarse, coarse fine, ultra fine. Mm -hmm. yeah. Those have served me really, really well. And then you have one of the tapered the uh, cones. cones. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah, and that works really well. And I've really adopted Sharif's method of instead of sharpening uh, towards the bevel, mm -hmm. you like hold... Yep. You hold the cone flat and then kind of rub it on the entire flat backside. Mm -hmm. And that really helps keep the the back edge of the tool yep. like consistently flat. Because yeah, right. it, you know, human error is a yep. serious yeah. thing and yeah. it, it will change oh, over yeah. time. Yeah, I've, I learned that the hard way too. Is I just just sharpen the bevel side and then knock the burr off flat and try to keep that as flat as possible. Because once, once you start getting, uh, what would you call it, from the backside of your hook where you start rounding when you edge. start putting you know you go from a flat bevel to a convex ang yeah angle bevel that yeah convex makes it really tough and you know it just doesn't really yeah <clears throat> yeah that's pretty much it's tricky yeah um the bevel geometry both on the front and back end of a, a turning hook i think is yeah it's really hard for you know for someone who doesn't know metal and doesn't work with metal and doesn't know like edge geometry i think it's really hard for them to understand because you can get a hook and that's really good from another maker and then you can mess that hook up like that yeah. just from one sharpening. So like <laughs> maintaining those those uh, those angles on on the on the flats on the backside and the and the front um I think can be difficult. Yeah. So and the, I think sharpening can be a really intimidating thing to yeah. take on. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like I was mentioning earlier. There are all these things that I forgot <laughs> went into the process of of getting yeah, like actually turning and getting a bowl on the lathe, mm -hmm. and like, yeah, and then sharpening was thrown in the mix, and I was like, wow, it's really, 
incredible that like people that do this have like they understand every mm -hmm. every step of the process absolutely yeah, yeah. and sharpness, sharpness on a on a, on a hook tool is so important because like when i first started and i was using the andrew lloyd um hook tools and i wasn't probably sharpening correctly at all and you know i probably messed the bevels up over time um i was noticing that just based on the species of wood i was using and how much moisture i had in it man it was getting to be very frustrating because my 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 hook would snag or it would catch or i couldn't get it just on the wood the right at the right angle to be able to get a cut started and i quickly realized like just my bevels were all messed up and as soon as i started forging my own hooks and making sure like the bevels were flat and they were sharp enough i was like wow that's what's been wrong the whole time <laughs> like duh you know like it's all about that tool because as a new pole lathe turner, if your tool is not like in good shape, like it can get frustrating fairly quickly. You're like, this is not working. It's so frustrating. I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> so that's one of the things I think as a turner, as you start uh, getting into the craft and, and, and progress through it, um, knowing your tool and how it functions and how sharp it is and how to sharpen it and maintain those, those bevel angles, I think is so important. And sharpness is so important because you don't get a good finish unless it's sharp because yeah. we're not sanding anything so like and that can make a sale because if somebody picks up a bowl and it's like man this thing is fluffy yeah <laughs> like why is it like this you know i want it smooth so <laughs> and there was like and you know obviously technique goes a long way too there was one technique that i learned actually from watching mark um just doing the back side of the bowl you know i used to move my hook on and off the bowl just to kind of get that radius going of that curvature that i wanted and I noticed Mark, when he was turning, he would drag the tool. He would just keep the tool up against the wood and drag and just pick up that little shelf and just take it all the way. And I had turned for like, I don't know, a year, year and a half before I realized that. I was like, man, that achieves such a nice, consistent, yeah. you know, sweep across the backside. And it's just like subtle things like that. If you don't have the, uh, I don't know, just the, the, the innate ability to like notice these things and like utilize them in your own techniques and whatnot um i think it could really make that transition for you from like oh i'm making a good bowl oh i'm making a really nice bowl that i really like looking at you know and people enjoy buying and using so no I th yeah i think you're exactly right it's just like all these little <laughs> changes that you slowly realize over time yeah that's one thing i emphasize a lot you know when i'm, when I'm teaching a course is that you know, people, they'll have this moment where they're getting really good cuts and then it goes away. <laughs> yeah. And then it's just trying to chase that and learn, you know, like, oh, I was holding the tool right. this way or applying the pressure in this direction. Yeah. And you know, there's all these little factors that, you know, eventually do come together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a very difficult thing to describe because there's so many planes. Yes. Your tools in one plane, your woods yes. in another plane that it changes. As yes. You get to a different part of the bowl. It's very, I found it difficult to put it into words. Yeah. Easier to show someone. Yeah. Because once you, it's all about, for me, it's about feeling. Like yeah. I can feel the tool and how it's interacting with the wood. Certainly, yeah. And like, especially turning nested bowls, it's all about feeling. Yeah. There's very little, there's almost no visual and there's very little feel, right. feeling. Right, you just you touch it. You're yeah. just like, sound, it's like, uh, there's a bit of an audio, audible aspect to it, what yeah. the hook sounds like and what does it feel like. That's so important. That's so important to know because, like, there's so many variables at play. And it's the one craft that I've done over the last, I don't know, five years since I started crafting that I realize there's so much involved. There's so much focus and attentiveness. You have to know how your body 
is is you know positioned against the lathe you can't be really tense you have to position your arm a certain way you have to have your hook a certain way the ball has to be like there's so many variables at play that i think for the average person who's never done any crafting before it's like whoa this is really overwhelming and to have them all be like synergistically working together to like get you to where the tool is actually cutting the way you want and you're achieving good results it's very overwhelming and it's intimidating like i'm sure you've experienced that a lot with your students that, absolutely you know getting started like god you know um so yeah it's it's really neat and i think anybody who takes on pole lighting or pole lake turning or even takes a class it's like man there's so much confidence like that has to go along with it to be able to to really enjoy it and feel fulfilled doing it and just take a willingness to yeah, let go of expectations. Yeah. And I think that's on that's on both ends too. Right, right, you know, yeah. especially as a teacher. Yeah. Well, if they're struggling, does that mean they're having a bad time? Right. Yeah. 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 Like their bowl is not turning out super great. Yeah. Like, are they okay with that? And it's like I think at the end of the day, it's like people are gonna be happy with whatever they oh, paint yeah. themselves. I still have the first two bowls I turned ever and yeah. I love them. I mean, they're not great bowls by any measure necessarily, but they're they held up, yeah. And I can't say that for all my bowls, even some of my nicest bowls, they've cracked or yeah. failed in some way. And these are ones I didn't know what I was doing because they were probably really thick. They're really thick. <laughs> <laughs> They're like tanks. It's funny you mentioned that because, like, man, I I've been teaching at this place in, in Lynchburg called Vector Space uh, blacksmithing classes, and I recently taught a like a camping slash grilling fork uh, class, and I had a couple students in my class and one of them was a sculpturist and like he worked on clay and he did like clay sculptures so and he like just used those skills and that place of creativity to try and apply it to like making something for the first time he's never forged before he's never touched the hammer and you know never worked with metal before and and he was like i'm like okay it's time to go home like i need to go and he's like still working he's like i feel rushed i need to make this perfect and i was like oh god Okay, well, uh, yes, you don't really have to, though. <laughs> but it's really hard, like, having a student come. And then I think the big mistake I made was I brought some examples of ones I made. Oh, yeah. And it's like they see that, like, or they study the maker or they look at their stuff before the class. And it's like, and they think they can, we can teach them how to do that on, like, you know, the two or three hour block that we're with them. And it's really an unrealistic expectation. And it's sometimes really hard to have, uh, a student like that who just cannot get that out of their head it's like how do i how do i convey to them that you really have to set this expectation aside and just enjoy the process just learn the process first <laughs> you'll get there eventually <laughs> but it's really hard it's really hard and it's it's like i almost feel like i carried a burden of them not enjoying the class <laughs> i'm like yeah i really want you to enjoy this class because there's so much more to enjoy than just the final piece that you're gonna you know hang on your whatever or put on the shelf somewhere so I think as a as an instructor and a teacher, that's one of the things that I struggle with um, when I started teaching is just being able to convey that that expectations are really they they just they're unrealistic for somebody who's first you know just getting started with this kind of craft, especially pole like turning. I mean, you know, it's so hard uh, getting started as a student. So yeah, it's an orchestra. It is. Yeah, it is. Oh my God, yeah, it's one <laughs> it's a one person orchestra. Absolutely, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I in a lot of ways I feel like I'm just just scratching the surface of like whole way turning. You know, I think I've experimented with nesting a little bit and done a few locking lidded boxes, but like, you know, they're 
I think that's been that's been a little bit of a challenge of like stepping away from doing more production style work or you know being more more full time a teacher. It's just like having that time to experiment. Yeah, on my own. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you know once I'm done building the tiny yeah. house, you know, have a little bit more time yeah. to yeah. do that. There's a lot of things I'd love love to try. Yeah, you know. Like, and grain cups. Yeah, and grain. <laughs> like to start. Yeah. Yeah. Turning some legs for stool. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that'd be neat. That'd be nice. Got a set of um Japanese hand planes oh, yeah. last year. Cool. And they're just so much fun. So much fun to use. Yeah, and like, yeah shaping stool tops. Mm. It's just like and shrink pots. It's just like it's <laughs> so it makes it so much more fun. So much more enjoyable, yeah. Having a good plane. I wanted to circle back to uh topic of green woodworking you mentioned your impetus of getting into it being kind of moving away from the power tools and all the drawbacks that come with power tools the loudness energy they require so on and so forth um and i always think this is just an interesting aspect of what we call green woodworking because that's a double entendre it's green in the sense of like ecological green as well as green wood where you fresh wood and the tools and techniques that come along with that are appropriate for the material. Um, and I think this is an interesting reason that a lot of people get into this. It's kind of like a, I think there's a kind of a dichotomy. There's like some people that are motivated for that reason of it being logical. Other people, it's just like cool. It's easier to get into because it is green wood. You don't need tools. Um, yeah, I was just curious about that, like how how that's been for you coming at coming into the skills and exploring it from that angle. Do you find more joy doing this type of woodwork than you were when you were building the house? Yeah. Um yeah, absolutely. And I I think I really enjoy the accessibility of green woodworking, you know, not needing a huge shop right. or expensive tools. I mean you can you can have a pretty minimal setup, and um, that's kind of one thing I struggle with with foliage turning in particular. You have to build your own. Yeah, you have to have a lot. Um, you know, and I think especially teaching it, you know, it's I've had an, uh, a couple of people who have been interested enough to build their own lathes mm -hmm. and continue that. And you know, I guess I have to consider that as progress yeah. and a good thing. But for most folks, it's just a just a weekend. Yeah. Fun, and that's okay fun too. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, the I think just the the simplicity of just like being able to more quiet and carve and just end up with a pile of shavings on the ground is just like yeah. something really peaceful about that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think as I was mentioning earlier, you know, after I graduated college and I I hiked the Appalachian Trail and that really left a big imprint on me as far as how i how easily how easy it is to overcomplicate your life mm. how simple it can be and how happy you can be with that simplicity mm. and i found that green woodworking in a lot of ways kind of resurrected some of those yeah. those feelings that i had in that time because the at it's like simplicity is paramount yeah yeah to your success <laughs> yeah 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 that's great it is funny i i uh guess over the past few months i've 
for some reason on YouTube, it keeps showing me different woodworking stuff. And it is kind of funny. Like if you just watch a video on YouTube, like look up woodworking, you'd think you need to have like a hundred thousand dollars to get started <laughs> yeah. because these guys have these, these huge shops. Like first of all, they got a huge building and it's full of like insane amounts of equipment. Right. And they're just making like a table. It's <laughs> like the, this is this little thing and they're running through the planer and joiner and yeah. the router and just like, it is, you know, I'm not going to sit here. Like I have a planer. I have a table. Uh, shops all I've got. I've got plenty of things. I think they're amazing. Um, but it is very inaccessible. If you just want to get into it, like you have to drop a couple grand yeah. buy all these tools, make a board square. <laughs> Whereas you could buy a saw and a plane for like 50 to 100 bucks do the same thing but the difference is just the skill level required you know there's skill level required for power tools it's different it's, i would say it's lower it's more so like a technical knowledge tool and the dangers of it primarily yeah yeah whereas with green woodworking like there's so much skill the pole days it's so much about skill and knowledge just like your story into it it's like build the lathe okay axe yeah. now i need to know how to sharpen an axe now i need to know if i have the right type of axe yeah. so many pieces of skill that are kind of invisible yeah. it's really what separates i think that's what separates the two there's a fork in the woodworking world of power tools not yeah. not to say that it's black and white look at it that way the separating difference that's a great point mark and to add on to that i think the difference I see the main difference between power tools and and hand tools is that you don't really get to know the material if you're using power tools. You really it just don't. powers through it. You're power it's like it's almost like you're just handling the material in a way that's very invasive and you're not really knowing how it works. Because you know, if you're carving a spoon and you go against the grain, you're gonna know fairly quickly. Find out. Or a right. plane or if you're hand plane. Yeah, or a hand plane, you're gonna know very quickly. <laughs> but you stick it in a planer, it don't matter which direction you're going, you're still gonna get the finish that you want. So I think just and then same thing, even if even if you're you were just exclusively woodworking, you still have to know metal too, because like you gotta sharpen the blade. Mm -hmm. You gotta understand what kind of metal it is and how well it sharpens, right? Like you gotta know edge geometry so you know how to, your plane works. So like there's so much more to do using hand tools and getting to know the material as well as metal and how the metal interacts with the material. Cause, it, cause you don't just buy a new circular saw blade. Right. Planer. Right. You can't afford a new planer blade every time your planer blade goes back. <laughs> you got to sharpen it, you know? Very so, true. And because of that, you're learning even another skill where, you know, you're interacting with metal in a way um, you have to learn how to sharpen, right? You have to know which type of, you know, which, what, what kind of sharpening method are you going to use? Are you going to use, you, use, you know, sandpaper? So like, there's so much more <laughs> that you can learn and grow from using hand tools and exclusively doing that for a while um, versus just going to Home Depot and buying a plane for 500 I would argue, this is my experience, it makes yeah. you better no matter what tool. Absolutely. That's my experience. Yeah, like transferable it, skills. By learning, yeah. pole turning, spoon carving, yeah. whatever it is, hand, with right. being focused with hand tools. Yeah. You learn so much about wood and, yeah. and then you can transfer that knowledge to, then the tool kind of becomes irrelevant. Yeah. Now you have that skill. Absolutely. So whether you choose to use, for example, like I was roughing out my plate blanks with a chop saw. Just because I could have all this chainsaw and chop saw. Yeah. So chainsaw to to square 
one and a quarter inch thick blanks and then cut the corners off of the chop saw so I have an octagon. And that was just making it get to the foliage faster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's things like that too. That's yeah. Or I, or using a power drill to drill the hole into the blank using yeah, a mandrel. Yeah. yeah. And then things like that instead of always oh, getting out the bracing bit and yeah. every bowl takes you yeah. Especially if you're looking at production. That's yeah. Having a hybrid where you bring in a power tool and yeah. help you. Yeah. Just like what Jared Dahl's done with his Japanese lathe, lathe or yeah. other makers that or, I mean, not I mean, um uh, the gentleman that works out of um uh, the place in the UK. I forget his name. One? The one that does <laughs> the one that does uh end grain cups. Oh yeah, uh Yoav. Yoav, yeah. yeah. He's turned, you know, he's he's totally taken right, his but time. he's taking all this skill yep. to the power lathe. To the power lathe, yeah. yeah. And you and you couldn't really tell the difference. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you can't. And that's, and that's I think where it comes. comes I think, think. Uh, uh, you know, uh, as a maker, as you try to transition through these phases, of, and I and I love, I love that, that I can be a part of you know the Instagram community and watch some of these makers uh, progress through their craft, like Emmett. Um, Yoav and, and Jared and just saying how like they transitioned from, you know, just hand tools and full and, and mm-hmm. to something different. Um, I think from necessity and, and maybe even feeling the pressure of like, I got to make a living. There's, there's a financial aspect to this, to this craft that, um, you know, I, I, I value because that's what puts food on the table for me. That's what allows me to live a life that I want to live. Um, feeling that pressure, I think, sometimes pushes us through that to that phase where oh maybe hand tool maybe a a, a you know a, a bandsaw or a chainsaw would really help save an hour or two in my day to where i could go spend that with my family or sure. maybe yeah, increase my production a little bit and bring in some extra money i think that's what that's it comes, comes down, down to, to um and i think it's really for a new maker they're, they're really, really missing, missing out, out on a lot, a lot of value, value and skill, skill that they could learn as they start off um to where they just go right to the right to the power tools instead of like oh let me spend a year or two just experimenting with just hand tools or whatever it is and then once i've learned that i can then figure out how to transition to using some power tools so i know emmett talks about that with making spoon blades yeah Max, yep. and you know how much he continues to learn from yep. from doing that yep. and the, the repetition and practice yep. of it all but you know, there's yeah, you know, there's always a balance. Absolutely, you know, there's, always, there's always a balance. I was curious. You mentioned doing the markets. You felt like you're trying to keep up with the production. Of your body you started to feel mm. like you'd try to feel. I guess. Um, Sore. <laughs> what? Uh, how do you? How do you? How do you um, approach that? Because I remember asking Robin Wood at our at the course I took with him. Someone asked. He was five years or something. And he had an interesting take on it. He's like, at a certain point, you just relax. Mm. A lot of the issues yes. that we have with our bodies is from Yes. And he just said yeah. he learned his He didn't have it. He said he could so turn true. all day and he felt just That's as good so true. as he did when he started. <laughs> and it's because he just, he just relaxed into the process. Yeah. And I find that's something I really find. Carving. Mm. I get so fixated on little details that I'm like tensing my whole body. Mm-hmm. Especially on the pole lathe hold the tool at it yeah and so much about that yes have you have you kind of found 
anything like that below that avoid some of those pitfalls yeah i mean i i try to do a lot of a lot of stretching mm. try to like stay in shape to keep my my body balanced yeah. because you know i think yeah weight bearing on your one leg yeah for that period of time can really yeah. kind of throw things out of whack for sure yeah um but yeah i think you're exactly right where we you know the more you do something you kind of realize all the tension that you're holding in areas that's unnecessary mm. I think that's a really amazing realization when you're kind of effortlessly moving the tool mm -hmm. through wood. Yeah. It's exactly where it's supposed to be. Um, and then just kind of trying to trying to keep that up. And you know, it doesn't always it doesn't always feel that way yeah. for me. Certainly, yeah. there's you know, especially like you know, doing the core of a bowl. I feel like that's I've yet to find that to be like uh, an area I can do without holding a little bit of tension yeah and maybe that's necessary yeah. or maybe my skill is yet to be refined to a point where it's not right mm. yeah yeah it's certainly a balance it's certainly a balance Yeah. yeah you put your body in some pretty weird positions yeah. you know it's 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 funny that you guys are talking about this because I, I recently started following this guy on instagram who's a mobility trainer and coach and who talks about like you know just our mobility as humans and how our body functions and moves and has because he used to be like really heavy into weightlifting and strength training and like building muscle and all that and then he's just kept having injuries like repetitive injuries and he's like what am i doing wrong so he realized that you know our bodies can and should move in a lot of different ways. Um, but what really hurts us the most is just having that re repetition. So like being in that position for too long, right? And then being tense in that position for too long is what really does the damage over time. So his, his, uh, his approach to it is put your body in all the positions that you can imagine it, it be going through. And we're supposed to be very fluid and mobile in a lot of ways. Um, but just, just focus on your, how tense you are and how much you're staying, how long you're staying in that position. So that has really lingered with me um, for a while now. And every time I find myself in one position where I'm really tense, I'm like, man, God relax. <laughs> you know, and as, as soon as you think about that and you like just kind of loosen your muscles up a little bit and feel less tension, it's like, oh, I can stay in this longer than I really thought. It's just because I'm so tense right now, <laughs> you know. And that's so hard to teach someone as a teacher, as an instructor, like when you're trying to teach a student not to be so tense, whether they're using a draw knife or an axe, especially an axe. It's like, you got to throw the axe. What do you mean throw the axe? Like just loosen your grip, loosen my grip. What if I, what if it falls out of my hand? <laughs> so you really, ha you know, even same thing with, with, you know, teaching uh, blacksmithing classes, everybody comes to the class and they're just so like their elbows tense and they're like hammering with their wrist. I'm like, no, use your shoulder. Loosen up your grip, and it's like so hard to get that out of their head. And I mean, I did it when I first started. So it's just, I think it's just, you feel the need to handle the tool rather than letting the tool do the work for you and just guiding it instead of like doing the work for, for it, you know? So, but it's a very important, I think, concept to think about and discuss because uh, 
like as a craft person you see yourself doing this well into your old age right like you want to be able to enjoy it as much as you can yeah i, I hope so yeah you know right. I, I have no idea at this point in my life that this is what i'm gonna do forever yeah. but it's something that i'm enjoying doing yeah. and would like to continue right right and i think focusing on our bodies and and how healthy we can be physically is important because that's that's what allows us to do these things you know and stay fulfilled doing them Yeah, I guess, yeah, right now my plan is to try to continue to grow, grow a base for, for teaching, you know, try to link up with some more craft schools and host, you know, host private events. Um, yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of the projection that I see myself in. But, you know, life throws you curveballs sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, so again, I hopefully, hopefully it'll be up in Maine um, next year. Um, yeah, you know, like I, I'm really enjoying teaching right now. Like it's, it's a, it's a great way to connect with with other people. But definitely, I'm looking forward to some time to kind of grow my own skill. Um, you know, I've, you know, I've kind of been self-taught. You know, with the help of the internet, which is a huge resource. But um, yeah, I'd really like to take some time to really take classes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something I've never. Yeah, I've never done. Always been interested in doing, but it's just a little, been a little bit out of my, my financial ability, and um, that I think that would be a really great experience. Yeah. Seeing, seeing other people who have really mastered this skill and getting to learn from them, and you know that might not even be holy turning. You know, there's just so many really unique things to try within green woodworking that, um, yeah, I've yet to. Yeah. That's cool, man. Yeah. 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 I'm on that on that too as well. I haven't taken any classes and I would love to I'd love to take something. Yeah. Like I see people doing it all the time. It looks really great. I just don't know why I haven't done it myself. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me it was like, oh, that class is five hundred dollars. Okay. Right. Well, I well, can I buy can this buy new this thing, thing that I can use in the shop. shop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For five hundred dollars, you know. So, and I can I just can watch a YouTube, YouTube video for twenty minutes and essentially learn the same thing. <laughs> I guess that's one thing I'll say that I've been really um, in awe of within the green woodworking and craft community is like being able to reach out to somebody and ask them a question mm-hmm. and getting like a thorough response. Yeah. yeah. Like I remember when I was first building my lathe i like reached out to owen thomas and you know in my eyes owen thomas was like this full like this full lathe master and he, he absolutely is celebrity and i was like hey like i'm having a little bit of trouble like about getting my centers lined up and he like responded with this like two paragraph thing and i was just like wow that's like yeah that's incredible yeah. and like you know same thing with i think reaching out to both of you you know both being really you know, welcoming, saying, yeah, like, let's get together and carve mm-hmm. or like forge some, forge some tools. And like, I just like, love the free flow of information yeah. and sharing. I think that's what really makes the community sustainable oh, for and, sure. and attractive yeah. for yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah.
<laughs> yeah, Robin, if you're listening, <laughs> if you're listening, Robin Wood, <laughs> please. Even if we have to come to the UK and do it in person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and we have like several recording devices going. <laughs> yeah. And um, I'm sure there are a lot of things on my mind. Yeah. That's what I wanted to say. That's great. That's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you don't know what we're doing. <laughs> the last two years have been just nothing but experimentation. <laughs> yeah. Don't forget about our last question. Yeah. <laughs> you prepared for this one? I've been thinking about it. <laughs> you know, I think because I feel so early on in my uh, craft journey and experience still defining to myself. Mm. Um, but I think as of right now, at least, I kind of have this sense that, um, yeah, Sloyd is, is community. Sloyd mm -hmm. is um, self-sufficiency. Mm. And Sloyd is understanding of... Uh, creating something natural through uh, a very simple process. Mm. I like community. We haven't heard that one before. Yeah, man. That's great, man. Wonderful. I love that. I love that. Well, um, yeah, without further ado, thanks for joining us. Yeah, yeah. thanks for having me. Yeah, it was great it. to be here. Where can people find you if they want to look you up? Um, so on Instagram, I'm christengers.cuts. Um, I've also got a website that's um, Those are kind of the two places I show myself online. <laughs> yeah. um, I'll throw yeah. those in the link, those links in the, the description for those who are interested. Yeah. But yeah, look Zach up. I almost called you Chris. <laughs> <laughs> look Zach up. And, okay, uh, Chris. <laughs> we will uh, we'll check in with you guys again, hopefully soon. Hopefully soon. <laughs> right. Don't hold your breath, but we'll be back. <laughs> Lloyd out.